And I'll begin by reading the passage here in verse 29. Immediately after they came out of the synagogue, they came into the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now, Simon's mother-in-law was lying sick with a fever, and immediately they spoke to Jesus about her. And he came to her and raised her up, taking her by the hand, and the fever left her, and she began waiting on them. Now when evening came, after the sun had set, they began bringing to him all who were ill and those who were demon-possessed. And the whole city had gathered at the door. And he healed many who were ill with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he was not permitting the demons to speak because they knew who he was. And in the early morning, while it was still dark, Jesus rose up, went out of the house, and went away to a desolate place and was praying there. And Simon and his companions searched for him, and they found him and said to him, everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, let us go elsewhere, to the towns nearby, so that I may preach there also, for that is what I came out for. And he went, preaching in their synagogues throughout all Galilee, and casting out the demons. The title of the message this morning is More Than a Healer. Anyone that has studied the life of Christ knows about his miracles, or at least that the Bible claims this person, Jesus of Nazareth, worked miracles. Uh, Jesus of Nazareth has generated more interest than probably any, under, any other individual in history. Whether people would call themselves Christians or not, it's undeniable that the, the name of Jesus Christ, this Jewish man that lived 2,000 years ago, ha has traveled the world. Uh, Christianity is the most popular religion in the modern world. Over two billion people claim to be Christians. Uh, the world, whether it, it loves him or not or understands him or not, they acknowledge there's something special about this figure, about this person. Uh, there's something attractive about him. But what, what is it that makes this man so perpetually attractive to the world? Even people that would say, oh, I'm not a serious Christian, but I still have a respect for this person of Jesus. What makes him so attractive? Well, his popularity is no doubt related to the problem of our suffering. Uh, if you're anything like me, you live in the same world as I do, and it's only a matter of time before the reality of life sets in, before we suffer, uh, before death touches our families, before we discover that the dreams of our youth are not actually going to be fulfilled in the way that we hoped. And this person, Jesus, he seems to be able to do anything. Right? We quickly discover we are not sufficient in ourselves to address our own problems. Uh, we are powerless in the face of approaching death. And so many people look outside of themselves. We go on the search, and we even have a word for it, seeker. You know, I don't really know, but I'm spiritual, and I'm searching for things. I'm searching for 
a philosophy. I'm searching for some spiritual leader, some religion maybe. Jesus was also very popular during his life in Galilee, as we'll see here. He was a celebrity. I mean, he was the number one celebrity during his public ministry. Uh, True, he was crucified, uh, but we're not there yet. We haven't gotten to there. He began his ministry with wild popularity, wild success, we might say. People rushed to him. He he could heal anybody of anything in just a, a single moment. And so people flocked to him. Many people witnessed his power. Many people saw his miracles. Many people were healed. And yet Jesus would later say that few, very few, understood him. There are very few people that actually embraced his message. And so the question the Holy Spirit is asking us all this morning through this text is this. Why are you drawn to Jesus? Why are you drawn to him? What makes him attractive to you? Is it his power? Or do you truly understand and love his words, the message that he's preaching? And so we'll consider the the narrative here in four parts. His power, his popularity, his prayer, and his priority. So let's look first at his power in verses 29 to 31. So the context here of the healing with Simon Peter's mother-in-law is a a busy 24-hour period. In verse 21 down to verse 39, it's one 24-hour period. And Mark is giving us a record of one full day of ministry in the life of Christ so that we can have this in the back of our mind as we keep reading through. So he won't repeat all of these things. It's just assumed that most of the, of the days in Jesus' life looked something like this day. He was preaching and teaching, casting out demons, healing, investing in his small group of men that he was training for ministry, rising early in the morning to pray. That was just the rhythm of his life. Was there ever a busier man? I mean, we all, or many of us at least, complained about being busy, so much to do, so many demands pressing in on us, so many needs. Uh, Well, we can learn from Christ. He was the busiest man probably that ever walked this earth due to who he was and uh, the power that he demonstrated. And so he comes into this house of Simon Peter. Uh, It doesn't always use the word Peter for him. Simon is, is his other name. So Simon Peter lived in Capernaum. Uh, There's even ruins now that people would point to and say, this is Peter's house. You could visit this shrine. It's debatable. We don't know for sure if it was his house. Uh, But the village of Capernaum, uh, we know where it was. We even know where the synagogue was. You can look at it. A short distance away in that same town of Capernaum, Peter had a house. And it wasn't just a, a tiny hut. So you may think, oh, he was a fisherman. He was very poor. He might have lived in a mud hut or something very basic like that. Well, he lived with his mother-in-law, his brother, Andrew. It's implied that he's married. So if you 
you could just jot down this reference, uh, but 1 Corinthians 9, verse 5, Paul acknowledges that most of the apostles were actually married. The gospel writers don't, don't include a lot about their family life. It'll say, oh, their mother-in-law or so-and-so was there too with them. But we know very little about that. But Paul says that, uh, he, he asked the church this question, do we not have authority to take along a believing wife, even as the rest of the apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas, meaning Peter, the Greek for rock, um, so Peter was married. He lived with his family. There were probably other people there too. It was big enough to house this little group. Uh, but his mother-in-law is lying sick with a fever. And we may think, well, a fever, what's the, what's the big deal? I mean, I had a fever a couple weeks ago and it's gone now. Um, we, we can become a little detached from the drama of the narrative just because we live in the modern world. We can drive down the street and get... 20 different medications to relieve our pain, address various symptoms, uh, heal various diseases. But it was not that way at all in the ancient world. Uh, Luke, the parallel passage to this, tells us that it was a great fever. So the word for great applied to the fever. Uh, the mother-in-law had a, a very severe fever. And it wasn't like today where if you're sick, you can just lay down and you know, you can microwave meals for yourself. Now, it required a lot of work to actually keep a household going. And so the fact that she was laying in bed sick was a big deal. If it was just a minor illness, she would not have been just taking a rest like that. So it's a great fever. Uh, they're very concerned about her. They immediately speak to Jesus about her, implying that they are concerned that it's life-threatening. And so what does Jesus do? It says, he came to her and raised her up, taking her by the hand, and the fever left her. And she even began waiting on them or ministering to them right away. The second he healed her and raised her up, she started running to the kitchen, cooking, preparing the evening meal. Have you ever heard of, of such a thing? I mean, there's a lot of Christians today that believe that there are miracle workers and healers and faith healers still walking the earth and doing these things. Uh, we, we praise the Lord when we do recover from a sickness or, or even from a serious illness that was life-threatening. But I would, I would guess that even in those instances where you said, yeah, the Lord healed me, it was not like this. It was not... One second you prayed, the next second you were popping out of your hospital gurney, getting in your car, driving home, driving to work. But it was like that with Christ when he healed people. It was an obvious miracle. Uh, he didn't come to people that just had minor aches and pains. He came to people that were blind from birth, deaf, mute, unable to walk, covered head to toe with leprosy that you could see, suffering from severe fevers. He even came to people that were dead and raised them. The authenticity of his miracles were indisputable. No one ever disputed the authenticity of his miracles. Even his enemies said about him, this man is doing many signs, and if we let him go on like this, all will believe in him. 
So they, no one ever questioned him. It wasn't like he was doing these kind of obscure sleight of hand tricks, like some of the things you might see on TV or on the internet today with so-called healing. And that's worth just being very clear about. Uh, that when we talk about a miraculous healing, this is our prototype. This is what it looks like. A miraculous healing is an obvious miracle. It kind of goes without saying, doesn't it? And yet we do need to clarify that because we can get confused. So the Lord does heal people today. I, I'm not saying that he doesn't, but I would argue that this, does, this is not happening today. People are not being touched and in the same second, popping out of bed and going to work. But because it was so dramatic and so obvious, the news about this spread all over the region and all over the city. Uh, the faith healers today, uh, if you're from, are you familiar with, have you ever seen this? Maybe on TV or, or something, or have a friend that have attended one of these crusades? Um, people that have actually attended there or even people that have been saved out of some of that, some of that word faith theology, right? They would tell you that it's largely a show. So they pre-screen the people that, are, that will go on stage. The people, you know, with a missing arm or in wheelchairs or the people with obvious deformities or visible sicknesses, they are put in the back and they're not allowed at the front. Only vague cases are allowed any spotlight, like a backache, uh, a leg that is slightly shorter than the other, things like that. There's no verification of the healings. There's no national media attention because, because it's a sham. It's a sham, it's a performance. Um, we don't have time to dive into all of that world today, but I would just caution you if that's something that, that you're drawn to, or even you're, you're rethinking, uh, I would caution you about, about that. Um, I, would, I would just ask you this question. Just, just, um, I'll just ask you to do this. Compare what you're seeing there in these areas and in these ministries with, with this. Just this clear, plain newspaper account of an actual healing that Jesus performed. And you'll quickly see that you're looking at very different things. So the news of this miracle uh, spreads quickly through town and it's only adding to the intense interest from the morning service. So remember last week we looked at the, the demonic possession of the man in the synagogue service. So this is the same day. Jesus had just cast out a demon from this man in front of a synagogue meeting. Uh, they were not yet buzzing around his house with all their, their sick because it was the Sabbath. You weren't actually supposed to carry heavy loads or carry people around on the Sabbath before sundown. And so that's why people are not yet swarming him. But in 33, it, verse 32, it says, when evening came and the sun had set, at that point, they began bringing to him all who were ill and those who were demon-possessed. And so they waited for the close of the Sabbath to bring to him their sick. And so people, the news spread quickly. A healer is in town. This person can actually heal any disease, any sickness. And so what would happen if that, that were to occur today in our town? I mean, if there was just one verifiable case 
of someone healing, being healed miraculously of cancer, let's say, what do you think would happen? I mean, the whole world would come here. I mean, here it's at least limited news. The spread of the news is limited by the ancient world. They don't have telephones or the internet. But if this were to happen today, it would be overwhelmed before the end of the day. There'd be private jets flying in all over the world, swarming to this person that could heal. And so that's what happened here in this town. The whole town showed up at the house. It says they brought all, right? Uh, they were bringing to him all who were ill and those who were demon-possessed. And it's, it's worth pointing out here that Mark distinguishes between illness and demonic possession. So sometimes you may have heard this in a, I don't know, a liberal history class. Oh, the ancient people were, were stupid. Uh, they thought all sicknesses were due to demons. Ha, silly ancient people. Well, they didn't. I mean, Mark here, he distinguishes between illness and demonic possession. Even the people back then, they knew that um, there was a difference between that. Not every sickness is due to a demon taking possession of someone. Notice also that Jesus didn't only heal people with great, huge faith. Is that something you'll heal, hear too in the word faith movement? Well, why doesn't healing always work? Well, I could just tell that you don't quite have the faith for it to work. It's just not quite the faith that the Lord requires. There's probably some sin in your life. That's what they'll say. That's literally what they will say to people that come with cancer or in wheelchairs on their deathbed. And they'll tell them, well, it only didn't work with you because of your faith. It's a little faith, it's a lacking faith. There's no evidence of that here. I mean, this whole crowd shows up. Jesus heals everybody of everything. No, no one's turned away. No one's examined for how deep their faith is. He simply heals everyone that came to him. At this point, uh, most of us would say, this, what, what a success. You know, most pastors would say, wow, we made it. Look at this crowd. The crowd is here. That's what we were going for. We've been trying to design our ministry to attract as many people as possible to Jesus, and now it's worked. And we can kind of stop there. But in verse 34, we see our first hint that Jesus is not quite thinking about ministry that way. It says, he healed many who were ill with various diseases and he cast out many demons. But notice this, he was not permitting the demons to speak. Why? Because they knew who he was. So who was he? Well, Mark chapter one, verse one tells us that Jesus is the Christ and the son of God. That's the argument for the book of Mark. Mark is trying to tell you that this person, Jesus of Nazareth, is indeed the Messiah, the Christ, and the Son of God. And so why didn't Jesus want the demons to be proclaiming his identity? Some people think, well, it's because they're demons. And so he doesn't want demons to be praising him, and he doesn't want demons evangelizing for him. And so it's, a, it's, it's more about who it is that's speaking than about what they're saying, but Mark actually tells us that it was because of their revelation of who he was. 
So what I'm saying is the, Jesus was looking on the crowd, the adoring crowd, the excited crowd, and he was saying, if this crowd really knew that, who I was, they, they're not ready to hear that. They don't understand. They're, they're just excited. For me to, to camp on my identity as the Christ and the Son of God at this point, before people really understand my message, what would that lead to? Well, it would just lead to a nationalistic frenzy where people would try to, hey, make this guy king. Look, look at this guy. He can heal anybody. He's a miracle worker. He must be the Messiah. That means he came to throw off the yoke of Rome to get rid of the Romans. Um, but Jesus, we, we find our first hint here that Jesus is going to start distancing himself from that from people that want to, him to do that, for, from people that want him to just show up and solve all of their problems, you know, solve all of their political problems, so, solve all of their, their temporary problems in this life. Uh, but Jesus silences the demons. Uh, theologians that have studied Mark refer to this as the messianic secret the messianic secret. So when you're studying a book in the Bible, uh, you want to try to see what's unique about that book. So there's 66 books of the Bible, and in a sense, they all tell us about God. We can learn something of Christ uh, from all of them. But each one is unique. Each one has its own themes. So as you read even the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you'll discover there's a, there's a slight different, uh, difference in emphasis. There's different themes that emerge. Well, in Mark, one of the themes that's unique in Mark is this messianic secret, uh, where Mark tells us a lot about Jesus silencing people. I mean, just look, Look down at uh, verse 44. We'll, we'll, we'll keep coming across the theme in Mark. After he heals the leper, he says, see that you say nothing to anyone. So today we're trying to, you know, encourage more evangelism, right? Well, back then Jesus is saying, don't evangelize because you, you don't quite know, you don't quite have the message right. You're just gonna run around yelling about this healer. Well, I, there's more to me than that. And so he wants the lid to be kept on his identity, at least temporarily, until the cross. He knew that they didn't understand him. He knew that they were just excited about his power. Uh, but Jesus regarded his popularity with relative indifference, and he responds quite unexpectedly. Let's look at his prayer in verse 35. In the early morning, while it was still dark, Jesus rose up, went out of the house, and went away to a desolate place and was praying there. Prayer. As I said, Jesus is probably, or he was probably, the busiest man that's ever walked the face of this earth. Uh, he was constantly on the move, constantly preaching, constantly healing. I'm not sure he ever did anything for himself. He, he couldn't have, he was perfect. So he was totally absorbed with God's agenda and God's will, totally absorbed with the needs of the world, the true needs of the world. Uh, but we find him after a busy day of ministry, a busy night of ministry, rising up early to pray. 
He was too busy not to pray. So a lot of us say, oh, I'm too busy. I can't pray hours. That's for, you know, the priests or that's for the, the pastor. Or, uh, yeah, I, I have a job. I have a wife and kids. I have all these priorities, all these projects, all these people that need me. And so I can just give God the leftovers at the end of the day. Uh, Jesus would get up before anyone was awake while it was still pitch black is what it means here. In the early morning, while it was still dark, while it was still nighttime, literally. Prayer for him came first in the day. Uh, it even came before the needs of other people. So keep this in your mind, right? The scene is there's this huge crowd of people with desperate needs surrounding him. I mean, people may even be camped out. What would you do if you were in line to be healed of your fatal disease, what would you do? You, you wouldn't just casually come back the next morning. You'd be probably staying awake, camping outside his door. But Jesus had to pray uh, because he knew that the excitement around him would challenge his mission. He knew that people wouldn't underst quite understand him till later, and he needed to be aligned with the will of the Father. In other words, people couldn't set his agenda. He wasn't going to take his agenda from the people around him and their felt needs. He was going to commune with God in prayer every day, first thing in the day for extended periods of time. Because the people, if, if it were up to them, they would pull him in a thousand different directions. You know, come to my town, come to my town, come over here. But he had an agenda from God to fulfill. In prayer, the soul rises above the pressures and demands of the moment and comes face to face with God. Uh, prayer keeps us in tune with heaven, with the priorities of heaven. That's why Jesus prayed. It's like when many of us go a long time just in the grind, in the daily grind, and we, we realize all of a sudden we have accumulated all these responsibilities almost without thinking. And we're just being crushed under the weight of all these responsibilities. Maybe they're even good. Maybe it's Christian ministry where we're just overextended. Maybe it's trying to do too many things at work, uh, not being realistic with your priorities and how much time the Lord has really given you to give to other people. And so what, what's our solution? Well, the, the proverb is, right, you need a vacation. <laughs> you need a vacation. In a vacation, when you pull back from the, the grind of life, it does tend to give you a fresh perspective. I mean, on one occasion, uh, I took a vacation and I actually realized I, I should probably start looking for a different job. Just the job that I had was not a good fit for my family. Uh, and there were other opportunities available. And so stepping out for a little bit gave me a, an ability to have a, a fresh perspective. Prayer is like that. So if you just try to walk through this world, live in this world, and you try to live based on the advice of other people, even godly people, but you're not praying, uh, you will find yourself frustrated. Uh, you'll find your life a tangled mess uh, you will be exhausted. You probably won't accomplish anything for God because you're always redirecting. You don't really know what is the priority. Uh, I mean, to, to have priorities, you have to say no. 
Okay, so what are you saying no to? What did the Lord, Jesus Christ, need to say no to? That's part of the importance of prayer in his life and in our life too. And so if we want to live a focused life like the Lord, uh, we need to live at the very center of God's will and that we can only achieve that through prayer, through prayer. And I know many of you would say, well, I'm not very good at praying. And if you, know, if you were called upon to pray, maybe in a Bible study or over a, a church meal or something, you'd freeze. Well, I understand that. Well, here, here's some advice. If, you, if, if that is really a, a concern of yours, then just pray that. Pray, I don't know how to pray. Teach me to pray. I know it's so important because based on the example of Christ, I know that that's part of godliness. That's at the very heart of a Christ-like life. So we can even pray that. Uh, Christ in prayer was expressing his humanity. So true, he was God. He's truly God in every sense. And yet in his humanity, he was still fully dependent on the Father. And he still desperately needed the Father to, to guide him, to reveal his will to him. He needed to stay aligned with the priorities of the Father. And so he did that. He prayed. So let's look finally at his priority. What was the result of that communion with God? Uh, we are saying that Jesus needed to stay aligned with the will of the Father. Well, what did that mean for him? We see that in verse 36 to 39. It says, Simon and his companions searched for him, and they found him and said to him, everyone is looking for you. So that word searched for him, it's a, an eager search. It, it can even be used of hunting. They hunted him down, they tracked him down. And so what does that imply about the disciples? They, when they woke up, they were kind of annoyed. They were kind of annoyed. Where's Jesus? <laughs> Where is he? Doesn't he know there's all these people here? I mean, doesn't he, doesn't he know that there's a successful ministry center to keep running here? Where is he? They tracked him down. The other parallel accounts in Matthew and Luke tell us that the, the whole village went out to look for him. The whole village woke up. First question, where's Jesus? Where is he? We have all these felt needs and we know he can meet them. Where is he? Where is he? And so the disciples come to Jesus and they say, everyone's looking for you. <laughs> There's a, kind of a tone in, that, in those words. Can you hear the tone? It, it's kind of a mild rebuke. Where are you? Everyone's looking for you. Right? Have you, one of your kids ever run away and, and there's chores to do or some responsibility and after 15 minutes or so you find them and you say, whoa, where, where are you? Oh, we needed you. We were looking for you. It's a kind of a rebuke in those words. <laughs> what does Jesus say? Oh, then I'll come right away. I'm, I'm sorry for making everyone wait. Oh, I didn't know everyone would be waiting for me when, I, when they woke up. He responds rather surprisingly. He says, let's go. Let's go somewhere else. What? <laughs> let's go somewhere else? What about all these hundreds of sick people? What about this success you just enjoyed? 
here is really our first hint that the disciples don't quite know what the Lord is all about either. So it's not just the crowds, his own disciples, right? The men that he's now gathered to him to invest in, the men that will write the New Testament and bring the gospel to the, to the rest of the world. I mean, they, they're kind of clueless. They don't know. This is a prize to them. I mean, if you ask them, what is the Lord Jesus Christ all about? What is Jesus all about here? They'd say, well, he, he's come to heal people and he's the Messiah, maybe. So the disciples, this is encouraging. Uh, this is one reason why I love Mark is because I can see myself here. I mean, when we were first saved, the, my, uh, my guess, if you're anything like me, there was a period, maybe still true today, where you're just confused. Like, I, know, I know the Lord, I know he's my savior and my Lord and the son of God but you're still quite confused <laughs> what it means to be a Christian. You're still trying to figure it out. You still hear, hear things at church once in a while and you're kind of like, what? Uh, that's part of being a Christian or that's something the Lord said or that's something he did. So there is a surprise that occurs in the life of a disciple. And so the disciples are being taught a lesson through this account. They're being challenged on their understanding of what Christ's priorities are. He left because he has a greater work to do. So in his communion with God, he kept aligned with the will of the Father. And the result of that was that his priorities were very clear. And the priorities were not to use his miraculous powers to gain as big a following as possible. That was not, that was not his priority, the goal of his ministry. There was a greater work to do. It's true that people had needs, and, and we're not saying here that he had no compassion. Next week, we'll look at the leper. What does it say in verse 41? It says that the Lord was moved with compassion. So when people looked at the, when Jesus looked at the sick, he actually felt real human compassion for them. He, he wasn't just this cold, indifferent preacher. No, he, he wept over people. He was touched by the suffering of people. Uh, he did heal many people. He did do that, and he will continue to do that through the rest of his ministry as we study it. But he knew that there was a, a far greater problem, a far greater need than just felt needs. Uh, he came to heal the sickness of all sicknesses. He does care about our suffering, but he can see that behind all of our suffering, there's a far, far greater problem. There's a far greater problem. I mean, why is the world suffering? Uh, why do, are people depressed? Why are people anxious? Why is death a reality? Well, the Bible says that it's because of sin. The Bible says that the world is under the curse of God because of our sin. The Bible says we're estranged from God. The reason that we experience death and suffering is because we were estranged from the fountain of life. We're estranged from God. And so there is suffering. Uh, the devil is running around rampant in the world. Uh, there is disappointments. There is all these felt needs that we have. And so Jesus sees that. Uh, so Jesus sees the true need of the world. 
And as much as he loves people, as much as he cares for suffering, he is willing to let someone suffer if it means giving them a greater blessing. Another false teaching from the, the faith healers is that God would never ever want you to suffer. That's not ever his will. It's not ever his will. And that's a, a horrible teaching. That, that's a horrible, cruel thing to teach someone that's suffering. Uh, there's nothing wasted. There's nothing wasted. All suffering is for a purpose, for God's children. He's using that and working through that for a good purpose. And that's because God loves us far more than just someone that comes along and solves all of our immediate problems. God wants to address our sin. And so Jesus came not primarily to heal, but to preach. Notice that. He says, let us go elsewhere to the towns nearby so that I may preach there also, for that is why I came. And then he went preaching in their synagogues and continuing to perform his miracles as well. And so the world does have a great needs, but Christ came to preach. It's through the gospel of Jesus Christ that our true and deepest needs are addressed. Uh, the carnal mind loves life hacks. Uh, we love superficial teaching that meets felt needs. Uh, that is what, honestly, that is what will gather a crowd. You just say, you open the doors and you say, everything that you are concerned about, all of your priorities, all of your concerns, that's what we're all about. And if you, if you come in, uh, we will help you with that. I mean, we will pray for healing and deliverance. Uh, we'll give you all sorts of wisdom. I mean, if you're not a Christian, that's okay. That's for the really deep, mature people here. But in the meantime, we'll kind of address those superficial needs that you already care about. But Jesus, he didn't live like that. Uh, he healed people, true, but, but he preached to them and remember what he was preaching. That's why we spent so long on those verses in Mark 1, 14 and 15. It says, he was preaching the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So he was preaching repentance. There's all these, there's this huge crowd wanting healing. And what is the Lord saying to them? What is he preaching? He's talking about sin. And most of the people in the crowd are, are kind of thinking, well, yeah, yeah, but can you heal my son or me? Uh, this town is Capernaum, where he is here, where this occurred. And in Matthew 11, listen to this. It says that at one point, Jesus began to denounce the cities in which most of his miracles were done because they did not repent. And he said this, he said, you Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will descend to hell. For if the miracles had occurred in Sodom, which occurred in you, it would have remained to this day. Nevertheless, I say to you that it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. What happened to Sodom? Do you remember? Fire came down from heaven 
and obliterated the entire town. So what, what happened to the people, this excited crowd that were gathering around Jesus so quickly, fawning over him and his power? Where are they now? I mean, tell me, where, where are they? Where are they right now, this moment? They're in hell. I mean, it literally says that in Matthew 11, verse 23. And so that is a, something to ponder. It's something to ponder. Um, and it demands that we ask that question, even if we've been coming to church for decades. Right, why, why am I coming to Jesus? What do I like about him? Do I like even how I feel? I just like being in a church. I like all this, these words of hope and joy and peace. I'm kind of down on my luck right now. I'm in a hard place and I seem to be getting some encouragement from this. Maybe it's practical. Maybe our home life is a mess. Maybe our marriage needs help. Maybe our kids, you know, they're going off the rails and, oh, we help, right? I, I know I haven't been quite the parent or the husband or wife I should have been, and I need, to, I need to kind of reign in my family now, and we need to be at a solid church. I mean, even that, right? We have to be careful. Even that is not necessarily the primary reason that we should come to Jesus, for his pra the practical life help that he can give us. I mean, he will give us that. Our homes will reform. A Christian marriage will be a happier marriage, but that's not why someone comes to Jesus, to solve the felt needs of their life. We come to him because we don't just hear stories of his miracles. We don't just get, get excited about his power, but we actually listen to his words. A real Christian is attracted more to the, the message that Jesus preaches than all the excitement, right? Than the, the, um, yeah, the excitement, the healings, the prophecies, the signs you see in the sky, all these things. That's those, th being excited about those things, are not, it's not a good sign. It's a, it's a warning sign that someone is really not quite getting the message. And so what do you like about Jesus? What do you hope to receive from him? What do you hope to receive from him? If he were here, if he were here, what would he say? What would he, what would he address you with? What subject would he bring up? He would talk about sin. He would talk about sin. Uh, he, he would say that I have come to heal but his power is far great. His healing power extends to something far greater than just temporary sicknesses. It extends to our deepest affliction, our deepest disease, which is sin. He'd say, I've come to heal that. I mean, that is the primary thing I've come to heal. He'd say, I come to save you from that, from sin. I've come to die for that even. And it's not our neighbor's sin. It's not the world's sin. It's our sin. It's my sin. So when Jesus preaches, when he was preaching to them, someone that was truly coming to him 
for the right reason, we're hearing a man confront him about his standing before God. Confront him that he was estranged from God, but not just to condemn, but also to offer the grace of God to those people. And so he pleaded with the world to be reconciled to God through him, and he offered himself to them as their savior. And so the question for us, I'll just repeat it, that I asked already, right, is what do we like about Jesus? Are we attracted to his power? Is it the power of Jesus? Right, do we wanna call upon the name of Jesus to solve all of our problems? Right, or is it his preaching? Do we love his power? Or do we actually love his preaching? Do we actually listen to the words that he's given us? And do we love those in him because of who he is and what he's done for us? And so that's our prayer, that the Lord would clarify this with all of us, so that we would continue seeking the Lord for the right reason. And that we would not be like the fickle crowds, right, that just get excited but really there's no fruit. In time, it wears off, and as the message keeps coming day after day, at some point it just wears you down. And you think, I, I can't listen to this anymore. I mean, this guy obviously has power, but I'm kind of, I'm kind of done, right? It's a, I can't take all this talk about sin, all this talk about hell, all this talk about judgment, and salvation. Our Father, we pray that you would give us ears to hear the words of your son. We pray that we would be true disciples, even though we may be confused right now, even though there may be a lot of confusion right now in some of us, like in Peter or Andrew or James and John, but we pray that you would make us into what those men became to be. You'd make us into mature disciples. Uh, that you would clarify to us what it means to be a Christian, that you would give us eyes to see the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, that we would love him, not because of the temporary fixes that he offers and that might occur, but because of the eternal salvation that he has accomplished for all those who believe in him. We pray that you would keep us on the right path, the path of discipleship, we pray that you would protect us from error, from the deceptions of men who try to present a false Jesus, who try to cater to our natural desire to have a, a genie. But that is not what we want. We want to know the true Jesus as the Bible presents him to us. So we pray that we would learn more of him as we continue our study through Mark as we continue our, our Bible studies together and even our, our devotions as we scatter to our homes. We pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear the true Christ and that we may follow him with the right motives. We pray all this in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen.